0: This week on Don't Panic, Backdoor Cryptographic Systems, Who Watches the Watchmen, and CSI Cyber teaches us what hackers really look like. Stay tuned! Welcome everybody to Don't Panic, the podcast from Palo Alto Network's threat intelligence team Unit 42. Topic today is backdoored cryptographic systems, and I am once again joined by Rick Howard, Chief Security Officer of Palo Alto Networks. Welcome, Rick.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me again.
0: I appreciate that. Really happy to have you on. So, backdoored cryptographic systems. I wanted to start off this podcast with a, a little anecdote um, from from my. My distant past at this point, uh, because I think it sort of helps just set the stage for anyone who's trying to understand the, the challenges around um, what we're dealing with here. Uh, so when I was in graduate school, um, I have to give props to Avi Rubin at Johns Hopkins University for giving what I consider the best homework assignment of all time and i'll explain why <laughs> of all time okay of all time and i'm not like this is not hyperbole all like right. of all time this i'll be was... the, i'll be the judge of that go ahead so this was a a multi-week project it was a group project which generally you know these can go a little bit awry in college but this one was excellent and here was the project we had to cheat at poker oh, okay awesome so cheat at poker, not physical poker with cards, but digital poker. So video poker, basically. Okay. So if you're wondering how a, a video poker system works, generally we, we you need to have a, a random deck of cards. You've got to have that uh, in the real world, and we get to that by shuffling cards together. But in the digital world, we don't have you know physical fingers that we can shuffle our cards together with. So instead. Uh, poker systems, uh, computer poker systems, use uh, random number generators. So basically a big long stream of random numbers which result in what we'd call a card stream. So a stream of cards which act just like a deck of cards are going to be coming out um, one card after another. And you've got to have that randomized so that someone couldn't predict uh, what the next card is going to be because if they could, they could cheat at poker. So that's the stage of that. Here um, came the assignment. The assignment was to create a random number generator which was uh, modified in some way that would allow you, the person who knows about it, to predict what cards were going to come next and cheat at poker Two, it had to be done in a way that someone who is looking at the cards coming out wouldn't be able to realize what's happening. They so wouldn't had, be able
1: to realize that you could cheat. It had to look like it was random
0: Yep, had to look like it was random. You couldn't okay. just, you know, always have the exact same cards because right. that's not going to be very interesting. Okay. Uh, and and three, another one of the teams who was also doing this project was going to get a look at your source code. And if they could cheat with your video poker, then you were going to lose points. Okay? Oh. So this is the structure.
1: Oh, so you, wait. No, I have to get this right. So you have to write code that looks legitimate to a, a code review oh my goodness yes that's awesome. and then we also
0: got to review another team's code if ah. we could cheat with their um with their poker program uh then we got more points so this was how this worked out so just uh, let's think about how this is going to work um, we've got to take our pseudo-random number generator and cripple it in some way so that the data coming out isn't actually random. So pseudo-random number generators, for for the people who aren't crypto experts, and I certainly am not a crypto expert, but I play one on the radio sometimes. <laughs> uh, they they produce random numbers, but they they gen- they take an input of some kind. So an input, something like a key, uh, an initial vector, basically that says, with this initial value that's coming in, I'm always going to generate the same random value. So I'm going to always generate the same information that comes out continuously, as long as I have the same input. And this is this is the basis for pretty much all cryptography, all all digital cryptography throughout the entire world. Uh, and this is what is the same sort of input for our um, our random number generator working in the poker program. So I'll explain what we did in our project because I think it's it's helpful for people to, to understand. Uh, we took a, a whatever the value input might have been, we tried to generate some randomness by um, pulling little inputs from the CPU, um, timing how long different things took and took the least sort of significant bits. So you know just the nanoseconds of amount of time that it took to write a little bit of data. We pulled all that together into something that was pretty random. And from there, we took that data and we took a, a hash of it, an MD5 hash of it. And then to create a stream of that data, we would just push that input, the, the input into the MD5 and the output from the MD5 hash into MD5 again, and just sort of continue that stream along. And MD5 being predictable would always produce the same output at the end. And what we did was we crippled MD5 so that instead of having the, the total um, randomness that was available to it, we basically limited it. So there were only around 32,600 or 768 possible outputs. So when we got to our program, we could sit down and take the first 10 cards and using that, go query a database and say, okay, we've got an ace and a king and a jack and basically out for 10 cards. So we'd take a full hand, we'd fold, we'd take another hand, and we'd know everything at that point. Uh, We'd go and query the database, and there were only, with those 10 inputs, we'd be able to predict every single card that came afterward. It was a great project, and it was really, um, I think similar in with respect to disabling or to crippling a cryptographic system like we're gonna talk about today. Um so but your point
1: point, though I think is that now that you've done this great thing, right, that you have to be able to hide that from everybody else because they're gonna be looking at the code to see if they can find weakness in the algorithm.
0: Exactly. So you need to do it in a way that isn't obvious, um, both in the code and also in the output. Because if people are frequently getting, you know, the same keys that are coming out, or in our case, the same cards that are coming out, they're they're going to know that something has gone awry. And if someone can audit your code and see that, you know, maybe you just put in uh, some sort of simple code that says. Only allow for these thirty thousand possible outputs, it wouldn't work either. So in our case, uh, we actually modified the MD five library that was included with our software, so that it didn't work quite as well as the normal MD five. Um, although I will admit, the other team did discover what we had done in our project, and, and that, I, I can—that's com- the had. rub,
1: right? Isn't that the rub? Okay, they so. did,
0: and that's uh, that's the challenge that um, surveillance organizations have as well. Uh, so if we bring this to the crypto world, we can talk about. Um, the NSA and and different activities that they've conducted to try and get control over cryptographic protocols. So the reason they might want to do this... um, Well, I mean, let's let's just back
1: up, because what's happened in the news the last couple of weeks, right, is both the FBI and the NSA have put forward an idea that they should have the ability to legitimately know a secret to our crypto systems so that they have a legitimate warrant they could... Uh, de-encrypt, you know, criminal or terrorist activity. So they have put that out there that it is possible to develop a crypto algorithm that is basically broken uh, by the people that know the secret. And they Mm -hmm. suggest that nobody else would be able to figure that out.
0: Yes. And that is an open question. Um, when it comes to, if generally when we're building a cryptographic protocol, we're trying to make it as secure as possible so that there aren't any flaws. And we want to make sure that there aren't any little flaws or any big flaws, because we know that over time computers are going to get faster and faster and suddenly little flaws that seemed like they could never be exploited can suddenly become very quickly and easily exploited. So what kind of, Changes could be made to a cryptographic protocol that would allow um, someone who knows a secret, um, one of the inputs to the protocol, to, to decrypt the traffic that no one else can ever discover. That's really a difficult thing to do and a difficult thing to trust, that it, that it won't be abused by, by someone who gets access to that secret.
1: And a lot of people think that that's not possible to do. I mean, some of the best crypto people uh, in on the planet have challenged the NSA and the FBI that, that you cannot despise a program that does that. I mean, guys like Bruce Schneier. Um. Uh, uh. Del, what's the guy's name? Uh, I can't think of his name, Ryan. He, he's a the Delphi guy. He's one of the RSA guys, one of the original Dif- RSA. Diffie Whitfield Diffie. Whitfield Diffie. <laughs> Thank you. Right. I mean, they've come out and said, you know, no, that doesn't look like. I don't think that's possible. Um, but on the other hand, um, I've heard Amo Rogers, who's the commander of the NSA, uh, uh, commander of Cybercom. I'm sorry, and the director of the NSA. He said, you know what? They have some of the top crypto scientists on the planet. And if anybody could do it, they could do it. So um, it's kind of a debate right now.
0: Yeah, and and one of the challenges there is that maybe today that is true, but maybe someday one of those top crypto scientists no longer works for the the people who we're trying to trust. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, they have that information and can find their way to another organization. At that point, have we built that... Sort of crippled system uh, into a lot of infrastructure, which is difficult to replace, and, and be in a position where all of a sudden things that maybe even the government is
1: relying on is no longer secure from people who might want to eavesdrop on them. Yeah, it seems to be a problem in the system there. And if we, let's just assume that there might be another Snowden event down the line. Uh, if that ever, if that was true, and we and the U.S. government built that into our uh, international c- uh, crypto systems, and it got out to the rest of the world, it, we would be crippled for a long time before we'd yeah. be able to fix it again.
0: Replacing crypto infrastructure is really, really difficult. It's time consuming because these things are often uh, incorporated in network devices, into hardware and systems, and, and pulling all of that out and replacing it is not like just issuing a software update. Um, and in some cases, a, a cryptographic protocol could be um, crippled by just a, a modification in software, but that's not generally what we're talking about here. Um, really, we're talking about the algorithm itself.
1: And I would and it would say that these algorithms are open source code, right? Because of the idea of these crypto systems is that we put every smart uh, set of eyes on them that you possibly can so that they could discover uh, some weakness. All right. And so that means that, you know, like in your homework uh, Project Ryan, where you had one or two groups looking at it, and they discovered your your great algorithm. Now we're going to have every crypto scientist on the planet trying to find uh, weaknesses in this new algorithm. And uh, what some of the crypto guys say is that it's just not going to be possible to hide it.
0: Yeah, so the 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 plan that we've been discussing is is to do this for the future and to make this possible. But really, there have been a few cases where crypto systems have already been apparently backdoored. Um, one yep. example is the the elliptic curve deterministic random byte generator, um, ECDRBG, which is was that's, used by. That's uh, easy for you to say. Yeah, I got I got that written out in front of me just to make that make sure I get that one right. Um, that was actually used um, by RSA as part of their their safe library. It's a it's a random number generator. Um, and in two thousand six and two thousand seven, there was some research that was exposing the fact that this. Um, Basically, this algorithm for generating random numbers, if someone had known one of the derivation that basically the relationship between two of the different inputs, they might be able to predict some of what that random number generator was putting out. Um, and in 2011, we saw a whole bunch of news related to this where uh, the RSA was accused of taking money from the NSA to make sure that this um particular random number generator which they had developed um, and they had crippled in some way was the default algorithm used in their bsafe library and this the Subsequent Snowden leaks really sort of confirmed that that was actually going on, not necessarily that money had exchanged hands, but that was a project that
1: NSA had undertaken to really limit the effectiveness of these protocols. Well, the conspiracy nuts on the planet have all, have all said forever that the NSA knew backdoor to key crypto stuff. Um, and, you know, No one has ever been able to prove that. But when the RSA story uh, hit, everybody started to, you know, eyebrows started to furrow and start to worry about this if it seems like a more legitimate idea these days.
0: Yeah, and so last year we had the Heartbleed vulnerability come out, yeah. and Heartbleed was a, a vulnerability in OpenSSL, which allowed for certain types of information to, to leak out, and it wasn't a vulnerability that existed throughout the entire history of OpenSSL. It was introduced just a couple years earlier, uh, and while most people agree this was probably an accidental um, occurrence, it's certainly possible that if someone wanted to make a modification to one of these libraries, in the same way just a small source change, um, they might be able to cripple that cryptographic system as well. Um, And that can be done by a lot of different people for a lot of different purposes.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and so, okay, so let's just say that it's possible to do it, all right? Or let's say that, you know, that probably the the NSA is gonna try to figure out how to do it and convince the rest of the world that they should be able to do it. And really that's the question I would like to ask you, Ryan, is that let's assume that it could be done or at least that someone will, will claim that it could be done. Here's my question. Should we do it? Okay.
0: So for me, from my perspective, creating a backdoor into crypto systems is simply too dangerous to allow it to happen. And, and that's because even if you, even if we agree that the keys to that crypto um, are never going to leak out, the, the person who can get through the backdoor, it's only going to the people who we approved of that. We can't say for sure how those people who we approved of that uh, in one year are going to use that backdoor in 10 years or 15 years. And cryptographic protocols stick around for a long time. They have a lot of staying power. And, and and disabling them or making them weaker from the beginning is just simply too dangerous from my perspective.
1: You know, and I agree that there's a real large chance that it could break out and you know and be used by enemies of whoever you have, right? Uh, but I'll, I'll go even further. Is it just as a matter of philosophy, just for uh, our own country, that I think it's a matter of, uh, one of our rights that we should be able to have our own privacy in wherever we are, right? And if we give uh, law enforcement and the intelligence community will and nilly ability to break into our communication stream, even if they do have a warrant, I I've got I got a real issue with that. Um, it, it, it would have to be laid out very clearly what the path was, uh, the approval path, and it have to be severe oversight because uh, and right, you know, with our and what's happened in the news these past couple of years with the Snowden links and whatever, um, I don't have a lot of confidence that the government can handle that kind of operation.
0: Yep. Yeah. I I definitely don't disagree with you on that one, Rick.
1: Um, I will say, though, that as as I've traveled around the world and around the country this past year, not everybody agrees with me on that point. They think the other side of the argument is that law enforcement and the intelligence community are trying to uh, protect U.S. citizens right and and they need all the tools they they should have in their in their basket in order to do that um and what i've been telling everybody is we need to disagree and this debate that we're having needs to be had by all of us because really this is a really technical conversation and not many people on the planet are have the wherewithal to even understand what the heck we're talking about so podcasts like this ryan um, about you know let's get the thoughts on the table so at least we can disagree with each other and find out uh, where we, where we need to be as a country and as as uh, as the internet evolves
0: yeah I think you make a really good point I mean there's there's always going to be the argument on on one side um, that if if law enforcement were able to get access to them this information they're going to be able to you know, prevent a a kidnapping or prevent some other atrocity which i I completely understand and it's a it's a really compelling argument to say yes that we law enforcement should have the ability to do this it's just with these there's no way for us to say only bad guys should use these systems um there's no sort of bucket we can put them all into so it it becomes a a big sort of challenge for for our entire community and nation
1: well and one of the questions that comes up in these conversations is does national security or even safety of us personnel or anybody for that matter does that trump everything else does that trump our right to privacy does that trump anything else and i'm not willing to give that up yet and 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 that's why these conversations are important absolutely
0: i think we i think we we hammered that one through that was a great
1: example i can't believe you got to do that in school i wish i would have been able to do that
0: you know, I really that was the the best project that I ever worked on from a fun perspective. Yeah. Um we had we had a great time and it was a it was good. This is 10 years ago, yeah. like, and I still remember this. And it was just a it was a really good project overall.
1: Talk about understanding the nuance of crypto without in, in learning about crypto and understanding the why it's important. Man, that's a Who was that professor? Do you remember his name? Avi Rubin. Wow.
0: Avi Rubin, Johns fin- Hopkins University. He's done some some awesome stuff since, but that's still my favorite thing he does. <laughs> he works on electronic voting security and all sorts of other stuff. But uh, cheating at poker is still the best thing <laughs> Avi ever did in my book. All right. Well, with that, I'd like to move on to our, our segment on security and the media. And, and, and this week um, is when we're going to move into talking about CSI cyber.
1: Ryan, you and I have been it. looking forward to this. We've been saying we we're going to talk about it, so this is going to be fun. We
0: have for sure. And before I really sort of go into to CSI Cyber specifically, I really wanted to sort of make the point so that people understand that this is not uh, sort of cybersecurity being part of, of crime shows and the media and being misrepresented necessarily is not new. So I want to play a couple clips for you guys really quick. Um, here goes the first one, just to sort of set the stage on things that have been happening for the last decade in, in, in crime shows. For weeks, I've been investigating the cabbie killer murders with a certain morbid fascination.
1: This is in real time. I'll create a GUI interface using Visual Basic. See if I can track an IP address.
0: Okay, so this one's a pretty famous clip. A lot of people have heard. I will create a GUI interface <laughs> using Visual Basic to track the IP address. Man, okay,
1: I, this is, I wish I had that program. Man, it solved all my problems.
0: <laughs> this is from regular CSI, not CSI, not CSI Cyber or anything else. CSI, the regular version, and and from 2009, so so six years ago. This was uh, already happening in crime shows. So six give years you another ago, example
1: Visual Basic was sexy, but go ahead.
0: It's true. Visual Basic, <laughs> GUI interfaces, tracking IPs, all important things to do uh, to, to sort of craft together real quick. All right. This next one is from a show called Numbers, which I don't think is on the air anymore, but I think is another good example of sort of uh, the mystification of attackers and hackers that happens in crime shows. Still no sign of Feigenbaum trying to attack Augie's site. No. And Zolf Feigenbaum is easily as good a hacker as Augie. Yeah, he's probably trying to decode the back door, too. You know what? What if he's not trying to hack, Augie? I mean, what if he's trying to find him?
1: IRC, Internet Relay Chat. It's how hackers talk when they don't want to be overheard.
0: It's a pretty primitive chat program.
1: Think of it like shipping channels in the ocean. You can't see them until a boat cuts through the water leading away. If two boats meet in the middle of the ocean to swap a load of illegal drugs, you have to catch them in real time. Otherwise, there's no evidence of the meeting left behind.
0: No names, no accounts, no records of exchange. Well, how do they see each other? Online names. Okay, so what? We got the fist and and what's Augie's? Booze Meister. Okay, I'll set up an alarm to alert us if either name enters an IRC channel. And can we see what they're saying? In Leedspeak. Luckily, I speak lead. Okay, so this was a description of IRC, something that probably many of our listeners have, have used over time. Having it called sort of a primitive chat program um, might be a little <laughs> bit offensive to people, but the, the descriptions... Uh, of in this case of sort of talking about these two ships that are crossing and no one can can see them uh, except for the the moment that they they exchange their goods is just so incredibly out there it's just a crazy description of something that for most of us is just another way of chatting something that would be quite familiar really in a slightly different interface to nearly everybody on the planet
1: ryan you and i were numbers fans when it first came out and we were kind of yeah. we loved all the math and all that and it makes you wonder if they didn't get the cyber right, I wonder how close they got to getting the math wrong, too. And you know that, that
0: that's something I'm going to talk a little bit about again when we go into CSI Cyber, uh, because as someone who us being experts in this field, this really looks strange to us. But to the public, this might be what they're accepting as normal. And, and yep, for me, when point. I see um, somebody you know read a facial expression from somebody and say, "Ah, oh, I know they're lying." I am not a psychologist. I can't read people's faces. Maybe that's actually true. And there's probably a psychologist sitting in the house next door to me who's going, "Oh, I hate this show. I can't believe they're showing this." <laughs> that's
1: exactly Right.
0: <laughs> Alright, I want to show I want to show just play one more example really quick. This one is from NCIS, um, which is a good good crime show overall, but just some some ridiculous stuff coming through in this one.
1: No way. I'm getting hats. O-Porsky? No,
0: no, this is major. They've already burned through the NCIS public firewall.
1: Well isolate the node and dump them on the other side of the router.
0: I'm trying, it's moving too fast. No, this is not good. We're using our connection to the Infos database. Sever it. I
1: can't. It's a point attack. He or she is only going after my machine.
0: It's not possible. This
1: is DOD level 9 encryption. It would take months to get built. What is that, a video game?
0: No, Tony, we're getting hacked. Take it in Abby's computer. The entire NCIS network is next. I can't stop him. Do something, McGee. I've, I've never seen code like this. Okay, so we've got a lot going on here. Um, Just a (laughs) continuous stream of buzzwords, basically, popping out of the mouths of these two agents, one of which, or both of which, are supposed to be incredible experts, experts when it comes to security. Top of their game. But the craziest thing that happens in this scene... Is that at one point to stop the attacker from getting into their? You can't actually see this because you guys are just listening. But at one point to stop them from getting into their system, two people type on the same keyboard.
1: Yeah, because that works. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like,
0: it's just a like anyone who's ever typed on a keyboard knows that that doesn't work, right? Like, you're not. That's not going to be effective. And like, what's really crazy? The people who wrote the script for this probably typed it on a keyboard right and yep. had some idea that that's not something that would make any sense at all but goes right through national television all right so that,
1: that, that, those are old examples all right so yes. here we are the new show csi cyber gonna bring us to the modern world it's gonna be exactly correct and we're uh, and we're gonna everybody in the cyber world is gonna have a great time with this right that's what we're gonna do yes definitely <laughs> accurate didn't quite turn out that way. Didn't uh, quite make We're three
0: it. episodes in now, so we, we've had three episodes of CSI Cyber. Uh, the last one is just last night before this recording, so I, I have not seen the third one. However, these first two, um, in watching them, and I'll, I'll be honest here my my feeling in watching these shows uh, or these two episodes was if if they'd removed Cyber from the title, they could have just called this CSI, and I would not have known the difference. Yeah. And the, in both cases, we got a whole bunch of people who are hackers. But every crime show at this point has somebody who's there who's hacking stuff up. That's what they do. Like, I, I, now, as I was mentioned before, Rick, when we were talking about this, I'm watching the show uh, uh, Arrow, which is a superhero my, show. One of my okay? favorites. Great show about a man, a superhero who literally <laughs> kills people using a bow and arrow. But this show has a dedicated hacker lady. All she does right. is hack into stuff. She yeah, has complete data.
1: control of the city in the in the arrow show, right? And so yeah. do we have that in CSI Cyber? In CSI
0: Cyber, we have the same level of control. We don't necessarily have one dedicated hacker guy. We do have a fat guy with a beard, yeah. which is important. What's and true. as a fat guy with a beard, I identify with That's
1: him. Damn straight, yeah.
0: But we also have just the regular cops, you know? We've got James Vanderbeek in here. Um and and James Vanderbeek, for those of you who are around my age, uh, Dawson from Dawson's Creek, uh, who is somehow in this show meant to be the tough guy. So he's the
1: tough guy. Well, and let's back up even further, Ryan, because let's talk sure. about the makeup of the team, right? Because okay. here's a show that's supposed to be about FBI solving cyber crimes, right? The head of the unit is not even a cyber person. She's a behavioral psychologist or something like that. I mean, she's done. And why is that? I mean, it's great that it's a woman. I I applaud the effort that we have a a female in charge of a cyber outfit, but she doesn't know anything about cyber. Her whole shtick is looking at people's faces and seeing if they're lying. Right. Yeah, so
0: apparently the the uh, I guess the uh, motivation or the inspiration for the show uh, was a was an Irish woman named Avery Ryan, who's a real person, and she actually has uh, she considers herself what they call a cyber psychologist, and I, I hadn't heard this word until I was I was investigating the show, um, but psychologists who specifically focus on the
1: cyber world, so you know, yeah. looking at here's my problem with people it, people and how they interact. There was there was a show that was dedicated to behavioral analysis of human faces. It was called. Live or something like that. Yes. You remember that? And that was a fantastic show and the actor in that was ten times better than the lady that's in charge of this outfit, right? So It was. And he could, that was a good show. Yeah, it was a good show. So, okay, yeah. so the number one doesn't know anything about cyber. The number two guy is Vanderbeek or whatever his name is, right? He doesn't know anything about cyber either. He's the muscle. OK, yep. when people are drowning, the cops that are standing around looking, w- looking at the car in the water, uh, he drives up 10 minutes later, drives in and saves the saves the, oh. the passenger. Right. Come on. And, and so he doesn't know anything about cyber. Right. And that was that was easily uh, from a show that I was really expecting
0: to just be blown away by the bad cyber security in it. James Vanderbeek teleporting somehow from, from, <laughs> from Washington, D.C. to upstate New York within the span of like 10 minutes to at the last minute save a baby from a car was the most ridiculous thing in the entire
1: show. So All right, so the number three guy is the, is the fat guy with the beard. Okay, he's a genuine yep. cyber guy. I will give him uh, cred for that. The only other two cyber people they have are te- uh, slacker teenagers. Okay, yep. what a trope. What a yeah. trope! Surely the FBI which- has more than one qualified cyber person on the staff, okay?
0: And and, and one of these guys was a, a a former criminal who they decided to recruit into their into their group yeah. uh, to sort of help turn him around. Which it's difficult to to get into the FBI when you have a significant criminal background, <laughs> especially coming straight off of a of a recent arrest. Um, so not especially accurate.
1: So the other thing I that I cringed at was the cyber talk. They have a C talk that Mm -hmm. they go into and basically it's not really much of anything except for a glorified video center i mean if you would go into a cisco um whatever those places are and you know establish a video phone call that's essentially what that thing is it doesn't really function as a tactical operations center except it makes phone calls
0: you know what they've got the exact same thing on every other crime show they got a room (laughs) it's filled with screens it's filled with very busy looking people and that's why, really, for me, CSI Cyber could have been called CSIDC. Yeah, like, right. could have been the exact same thing. Um, but the, in this case, that's a, I guess we'll at least have a computer involved in every episode in some way or another.
1: All right, so can we find anything good about the episode? Do you like anything about it? Or the, uh, the, the show?
0: honestly, this is not a show I'm going to watch. Yeah. Um, it's not going to make it into my list uh, of, uh, of, of superhero primarily shows that <laughs> that are my and fantasy that are my daily TV watching. So I probably wasn't the CSI cyber watcher from the beginning. Um, I'm going to keep, keep on top of it. Cause I'm sort of curious where this goes. Um, but just from my, my first couple episode visit uh, viewing, despite the fact of that CSI has been an incredibly successful franchise. Um, I don't
1: think this one's going to last. I just, I don't think, I, just, so I,
0: don't th- I don't think there's as much interest in it.
1: I will say, Say though, I I will give it some props on two of the topics. On I I, like you, I've only watched the first two episodes. On the first one, hackers were uh, hacking into baby monitors and then Mm -hmm. stealing babies and selling them on the black market. I thought that was a pretty interesting you know, cyber crime, all right? Yep. And the other one was uh, they broke in, the bad guys broke into SCADA devices at an amusement park and were crashing uh, roller coasters uh, for their their amusement and the gore. I thought that was a pretty interesting cyber crime also. So I will give it props yep. for that.
0: They're definitely creative in how they connected all of these elements together. Yeah. Not necessarily realistic, no. but creative, creative from that perspective. Creative,
1: yeah, yeah. So that's as far as I'm going to go. I'm with you. It's not going to be in the rotation. We were looking forward to it because, we, I, Ryan, I think you and I both thought it was going to be awful. And I, I think that uh, that is true. So we, we watched it so that none of you on the podcast audience would have to.
0: You're welcome. <laughs>
1: Very good. All right.
0: <laughs> on that note, I think we're just about done for this edition of Don't Panic. Thanks for joining me again today, Rick.
1: You bet. I had a lot of fun,
0: as always. To everybody else who's listening, so long, and thanks for all the fish.